Welcome to Off Hours, a conversation between John Edwards and Chris Manning. The modern watch industry employs more than 100,000 people who remain mostly anonymous. A few people have the skill or personality to stand out enough to become household names within the industry. Our guest on this episode is one of those people. Recently, John and I had the pleasure of spending a few hours talking with Peter Speak Marin. Peter never set out to become a watchmaker. He was pushed towards horology by a careers counselor, and it turned out to be the perfect direction. Peter spent the next decade progressing through various levels of education, including Wostep's Complications program. The most influential part of his early career involved restoring antique watches before eventually working at the complication specialist's Renault et Papi. Around this time, he began working on his first watch, the Foundation Watch. It, along with the support of his wife, Daniela, would be the catalyst for becoming independent, which they have remained ever since. His latest project, and possibly his most important legacy in horology, is The Naked Watchmaker. What follows is part one of our conversation. Welcome to the Off Hours Show, Peter. It's a great pleasure to be here. Uh, you have a, a series of 12 questions that you ask pretty much anyone you have featured on thenakedwatchmaker.com. I'd like to start things off by, by riffing off your, your first question there. And uh, the story of the careers counselor at your high school uh, recommending that you attend the watchmaking program at, at Hackney College is well covered elsewhere. So we'd like to, to take a different angle and ask you what life was like for young Peter Speak. What was it that you think that the staff at the school saw in you that led them to, to dust off that, that old folio and, and nudge you towards pursuing a career in watchmaking? The careers teacher who literally dusted off that portfolio, I think she had no... She was doing her job very conscientiously, trying to find some kind of direction for somebody who, in a sense, did not have any direction. And I don't think she saw anything, uh, in essence, profound about my ability or that this was my future. It was more, I had left St. John's Comprehensive School with eight O-levels, and they were all consistent Cs. I managed, I was pretty much average in everything. But what I enjoyed and what I kind of did better in were things which were more creative I did enjoy history, although I didn't uh, excel in it. And I liked anything which was mechanical, whether that be metalwork, woodwork, draftsmanship of that period, technical drawing, pre, pre-CAD. I mean, this was all very much pre, uh, pre the internet. So she must have somehow put the elements that I preferred together and came up with a Hackney Technical College and this course on horology. I remain, and I always have remained, incredibly indebted to that woman. And as we speak, I kind of feel as though I should probably had or have uh, gone back and actually thanked her. I think I may have done once during what seems like a, a very long career. But I think that basically she was being competent in finding a solution for one of the, the, many, uh, the many students that didn't have much of a direction. But what she did for me really was quite profound. And from the moment that I walked into the school and the moment that I met the then Mr. Beanie, the guy who actually was uh, the head of the, the watchmaking or the horology course, it felt right because I was kind of an obscure, unusual person, a little bit of an oddball in my own way. And most of the students that were on the course were likewise. So it felt like a good fit. And at the time, I had, in a sense, no real direction. I'd looked into jewellery, but I didn't have a foundation degree in art. I was going to go into the mechanics division in the Air Force, but I didn't pass the, um, the courses. I failed by several points. So by the point that she came up with this idea, this direction, I was pretty much willing to take on anything to be able to find some kind of direction. Kind of makes me me think of, of Philippe Dufour's past too, and in that that watchmaking wasn't necessarily something that was was on his radar, and he wanted to to do other things in in life, but was essentially coerced into watchmaking, uh, and now is like you, one of the 
most renowned independents, or probably the most renowned independent watchmaker that that is alive today. Agreed. Agreed. Philip is an extraordinary guy. And he is, I mean, I describe him often as being the, the godfather of independent watchmakers. And he is, I think, loved, revered, and respected by by anybody and everybody. What I find quite often interesting is that if you go to the Valley de Joux, where I spend a certain amount of time, and Philip and Leo, his wife, they're, they're, they're good friends. You go there, and we see Philip as being somebody who is in his own right, kind of a deity, a watchmaking deity. He's an extraordinary guy. Well, you can walk down the street and you can talk to other people, even in watch factories, and they'll never have heard of him. You can go to Japan, you can go to Singapore, you can go to New York and have conversations with people who have just a flirtatious interest in watchmaking, and they have heard of him. I find that kind of curious that in his own area, in his own territory, even with the reputation that he has developed, there are people who still are unaware that he actually exists. That's really just down to, that probably just resonates with how we get very caught up in the world of watchmaking, the people who become impassioned by it, we, we fall in love mm. with it. And then the learning process never really seems to end. But at the very end of the day, it's, it's micro. I mean, it, it's tiny. The number of people who have knowledge within watchmaking is is really not it is not particularly large and if i can just go off on a very quick anecdote a number of years ago when i was promoting my previous brand i would do this what round the world tour which was like a, a business class third minimum of 13 flights in one direction with a company like star alliance and i would fly around the world it was actually an idea given to me by Max Bousset, who would do the, the same thing. And as I flew, quite often, I mean, I would be sitting next to lawyers, bankers, other professional people, and they very rarely would want to talk about what they did. But when I mentioned what I did, they were fascinated. And I would mm -hmm. go through the different companies that I had worked with or for, whether it was at the time Roger Dubuis, Orma Piguet, um, Renault and Papi. Uh, touched on Richard Mill. And with the exception to uh, the occasional person who, who at that point knew who Odoma Piguet was, nobody knew Richard Mill. Nobody knew uh, Roger yeah. Dubuis. Uh, certainly nobody had heard of Renaud Papi or Volche uh, or Parmigiani. Uh, yet between those companies that nobody had ever heard of, there were hundreds of millions of dollars of uh, marketing money spent. So it's... It, it's a very it's very difficult to be able to actually have that kind of visibility to be seen even with the um, the, the internet uh, of uh, of today so so it, that's just to say that we know very well our world but our world is very niche it's is very um it's not hidden but we are i think we're obscure be beings in it so to speak I think a lot of the people who are very passionate about this, you know, like the three of us, we, we're also particularly keen and interested in learning who's in the world and, you know, what, what they're doing. But we also forget that most of the people in this industry, for them, it's a job. It's, it's something that they do to make a living. Uh, I, I've been learning engine turning over the past 20 years, which has become a, a quite obscure art, uh, unfortunately. And I, I remember a friend who found out about a, a retired engine turner in the UK. And he, uh, this gentleman was in his, I think it was in his early 80s at the time. And he made contact and said, look, I'm, I'm trying to learn how to, how to do this. Would you be willing to sit down? I'm happy to pay you for a couple of days of your time and teach me how to use this. And the man cursed at him and told him never to call back. He didn't want to have anything to do with those infernal machines because for him it had been a mundane, repetitive job that he had, you know, he had spent 30, 40 years of his life doing. And today we think of it, you know, it's it's a fairly artistic endeavor now because most of us who are doing it are you know, again, we're independent makers, we're, we're artists, and we're, we're using it as a way of, of decorating our work. 
But at the time, it was just a technician who was sitting in front of an engine and doing what they were told. And, and I think a lot of times we forget that as well, that, that the people like Philippe who we're talking about, you know, they're not necessarily known by the industry because most of the people in the industry, they just want to do their job and go home to their families. Absolutely. Absolutely. When you walk through, um, when you walk through a lot of the, uh, the companies that I have done over the last two years, you become, oh, that, that is very much reinforced. And it's, it's not a criticism, but it's an inevitability because over mm -hmm. here, being a, a watchmaker or a micromechanician, these are regular sort of non-aspirational uh, jobs. Um, you have people within all of the companies that absolutely love what they do. But then, as you say, there are people who are doing this because it is a means to an ends, And it mm. is uh, an automatic uh, choice because if you are in the Valley du Joux area, then horology, it is the, the, major, the major industry. If you're going to live there, stay there, and you want to uh, earn a decent salary, that is the industry to actually get involved in. The, the territory, the proximity, it all, it all makes sense. From Hackney, you, you went on to Wostep, not once, but, but twice, which is the Watchmakers of Switzerland Training and Education Program. What is a, an, an anecdote or a, a key learning uh, that still sticks out for you today from that period of time? Okay, a non-watchmaking uh, anecdote was actually climbing up the side of a bank uh, during the Fête de Vendage and acquiring a Swiss flag that was actually uh, adorned <laughs> from it. And I'm sure we were filmed. Um, and then actually each one of the English guys, we were all living together in a, in a youth hostel called the Maison de Jeunes. Uh, we signed each part of the cross and then gave it to Mr. Antoine Simonet as a thank you when we left. Yeah, very, very foolish. I haven't thought about that for many years. Um, on, on a more pragmatic level from watchmaking, not so much an anecdote, but a reality is that we never know everything. Uh, we never will know uh, everything. And every time, and you discover this, whether you're a student or whether you're working in the real world in uh, after-sales service, if something does not work, there can be 500 reasons why it doesn't. Never let ego or confidence or even experience replace the sort of the investigative process of finding out the why behind the problem. Never make any assumptions because 99 times out of 100, you probably will be wrong unless you're working on the, exactly the same product repeatedly um, for a dedicated brand boutique. And even then, there can be multiple reasons why something uh, is not working properly. Um, so uh, assumption is the mother of all errors in general. And if you're working as I was in Somlos with such diverse periods of, of watchmaking, um, as well as different brands, never make an assumption. And I know that that's not really answering your question. It's not anecdotal. Um, but it is a lesson that I learned early on, along with probably the most valuable lesson of all, which is pride doesn't help you. Oh, ego doesn't, doesn't help you. If anything, it actually works against you. Well, that is ab absolutely a, a key learning and, and something that uh, I'd say I was hard learned for both myself and a number of other watchmakers I know early on. It's just uh, you really don't know everything and can't know everything. And it's just a, a process of, of continually learning and finding your way through new challenges that, that present themselves to you over the course of your career? The fact that you never master the profession, you, you become very competent. One becomes very competent at it with experience, as you would do with, with any kind of uh, profession, any kind of skill. But that constant learning, that constant uh, exploration, that's, that's what's wonderful about watchmaking. Um, it's that which actually prevents it from becoming dull. Uh, and in my very early career, the reason that I would move around so quickly was the moment that I did master uh, a product. I mean, Piaget was actually brilliant. I really enjoyed the time. But there was half a dozen, uh, half, basically half a dozen calibers at that period 
the 9P, the 12P, the 20P, they were all manufactured calibers. But once you had done, say, 20 of them, you had kind of, you, ha- you had a very clear overview of how that product worked. And the learning curve would go from very steep to not so steep. Although you could continue to learn, you need to move on. Um, and yeah. that was something which I, I thoroughly enjoyed doing. No family, no responsibilities, just a, a, a thirst to learn as much as I could. And then when I went to Somlo's, it's a complete game changer because there you literally could be there for an entire lifetime. And the learning curve, it does taper off, but the the degree of learning will always be there and it will always be quite extraordinary. And it was actually a, a, com- okay, a, a cliche from a conversation that I had with Ian Skellen, who's a, a wonderful friend, who's the one of the founders of Quill and Pad. And he basically said that confidence is a superpower and at that time we took in everything and providing people were prepared to pay what we charged which was considerable because we we've spent time and did the job properly uh we could do absolutely anything and at one stage when i went to get access to vintage rolex components from rolex I went to have a training uh, with them, went to Bexley, Bexley Heath, which was where the after-sales service was at that time in the south of England for, for Rolex. And the guys couldn't get their head around how we did what we did because we had no instruction manuals. Because whether it was a piece made in 1900 or 1800, they didn't exist. They didn't apply. But the confidence that we had, the belief in ourselves that we could, could do anything uh, especially when we weren't really heavily experienced, meant that we took it all on, and it was an absolutely uh, it was a, it was a fabulous experience, and we we ended up having pieces sent to us from all over the world within a period of mm. the six years of working with Christie's and Sotheby's and uh, Anticorum, private clients, private collectors. Everybody knew about the workshop. And anything which was delicate or people weren't sure about would end up being sent to us. And that was both very flattering, it was very much a privilege, but incredibly rewarding. And that, without this is not meant to be uh, leading into the Naked Watchmaker, but that really was the, the reason for the Naked Watchmaker. Because I saw, I saw things that other people never saw and very few watchmakers would ever see. So I would start to photograph and do and make articles uh, at that period on the watches that I saw because I wanted other people to see what I was seeing. I think I was possibly slightly deluded because I thought everybody would love to see the same thing, not really fully appreciating at the time that the passion that I had for it wasn't equaled by everybody else. Um, but it was the, the catalyst to, to what I do today. And to be taking those photographs back then is is saying something too, because it's, it's not as easy as it is to take a photo today where you can just pull out a, a smartphone and, and snap a quick picture. You're actually taking a photograph onto to film and then having that film processed and to get the lighting all, all right. You can't, you don't have that instant feedback that you have from modern day digital cameras. Uh, so it, it definitely speaks to the, the passion that you had to be taking photographs back then. It was a nightmare. I had. Um... A Mamiya medium format camera, which is a professional camera with a, a Polaroid case bag. So every time I took a picture, there was a huge amount of thought that went into it. And I mean, every time you took a, a Polaroid, it gave, an indica- it gave you a rough indication of what the result would be like. But yeah, it was, it was a different world. But that was the world that we lived in. And it was also in part why I stopped doing it because it was just so incredibly time-consuming. Um, mm. And with all the passion and the love that I had of, of my subject, you've got to earn a living. And that consumed an enormous amount of time. And I mean, not just the taking the pictures, but then, as you say, uh, I would then walk down to the Princess Arcade, which was the next arcade down on Piccadilly, go in, hand over the, hand over the film, of which there would always be two or three at a time. And I think, I'm not sure if there was more than... 20 pictures or something in one of those rolls so there'll be several of them and it was an it was actually an expensive process in in every in every conceivable way Mm -hmm. both in time and money absolutely 
the the environment there there at Samlo I, I think is is testament to to George Samlo and and the faith then the passion that that he had in in what you and, and the rest of the team could do there as well absolutely absolutely when I started George had just finished off uh, his sort of market dealer uh, experience. I think he was in Port- he was first in Bermondsey, and then he was in Portobello Road, which is where his father uh, had originally been a watch dealer. And then, uh, probably not more than a couple of years, I th- I'm guessing, but I think a couple of years before I met him, he had then taken on the boutique in, in Piccadilly, number seven. And it was... Compared to what it became, there was just like a handful of watches in there. Um, and his goal was to be able to both offer to clients outside the service of restoration for their pieces and to ensure that everything that he physically sold himself was actually guaranteed and repaired sympathetically to what that watch would have been like originally and again accompanied with a guarantee. So th- there was nothing in place. And when I went to him... He basically offered me more money than I'd ever earned. Uh, he, offered, he gave me the keys to the shop, the combination to the safe, and a blank check to design and build a workshop. That, to this day, kind of amazes me that anybody would give that amount of trust and confidence to somebody, basically, that they don't know. And, I mean, I was just like a, a 20-something, uh, a very early 20s at the time. But it had a lasting uh, impact on me. And... Not only the, the like the products, the watches that we restored, but the people, the team that we developed, the infrastructure, the network of artisans that ended up surrounding us was 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 fantastic. And it, nothing like that had really ever been done before. The closest would have probably have been Asprey's at the time, um, but Asprey's were also very much involved in making their own products uh, under the Asprey's name. Whereas everything that we did was on the basis of restoring antique and vintage collectible timepieces. Everything which went back to, God knows, the 17th century, definitely 18th century, up until the 1950s. Um, And pieces which everybody knows, the most famous in the world, and obscure brands that nobody knows of today, but within the collector's world, held a place. Yeah, it, it was it was fantastic. Steve Hale, who was the first watchmaker to work with me there, is still working. Uh, in fact, the, the workshop um, splintered off, separate from George, but still works with George. And I went to see Steve, and we've been friends now for what seems like 100 years. And I visited his workshop about a year ago, where some of the deconstructions that I made on early pocket watches were actually executed. And as I'm sitting in his workshop, taking pictures, taking apart the Jules Jurgens and the Paddocks and the Omegas that, that George, George had actually lent me for the deconstructions, I see this flotilla of different product coming through that workshop. And it was fantastic. I mean, it, the, the diversity of product of, of wristwatches, and it was mostly wristwatches made between 1910 and 1950, is, is unbelievable. And being there, I think I was there for about a week. Again, I was reminded of, of that period, and it it was a wonderful period. And the, the the pieces that Steve still works with today were the ones which we were working on then, and they were they are incredible. And there are there is there remains so much diversity. A company like Rolex made hundreds of different designs, and for the most part, people are completely oblivious to what they did, um, despite them being the biggest watchmaker in the world. They today is it's the oyster, but at the time they made cushions, they made octagonal pieces, princes, princesses, bubble banks, the most most bizarre array of designs. And the thing that I always love is that it had never been done before. It wasn't an influence on something that had already existed. Everything that happened at that period from the 1940s and beforehand is that which has really influenced entire industry but at that time it was genuinely original and it's a fascinating area in horological history yeah, hans wilsdorf was was absolutely very rapidly breaking new ground in the early part of, of the last century with rolex it's uh, an incredible legacy that, that he has left with that company 
Yeah, absolutely. Now, the, the topping tool has, has come to, or the wheel from a, a topping tool has come to be a repetitive motif in quite a bit of your work. What was your first encounter with a, a topping tool at Somlo, or was that elsewhere? Probably the first time was at Wostead. I'm not, honestly, okay. I don't even think I had one at, at, um, at Somlo's. Um, and then I used one that I bought when I made the foundation watch. I mean, there, there are two reasons for the, the, the value of the tool. I mean, one is clearly the, well, actually three reasons. One is clearly the functional aspect of it, uh, what it can actually do when you're either modifying or making wheels with, a, with the minimum of, of, of equipment. Um, the second is the aesthetic, because it is something which is beautiful. And that resonates with what watchmaking is, because it's not just about a function that it performs, it is an item of beauty. It is something which has an aesthetics to it, which is unnecessary for the function, but they tend to always be finished in a really ornate fashion, whether it's the like the one that, that I adopted and made more flamboyant. Or if you look on the Naked Watchmaker and you go to the micro-mechanics, sorry, the mechanical marvel section, there's a whole array of early topping tools there. Um, which have been lovingly repaired. And they are always stunning. Even those which are more functional and less aesthetic than others, they all have a, an element which is aesthetically pleasing when they don't have to be. And the, the third reason for the topping tool or the, the emblem is that tools for me are the process by which you realize the dream. They're kind of the key to the door. If you don't have the tool, you can't make the part, you can't execute the, the, the product, the watch that you want to make. You can't realize the dream. So I became kind of fascinated by process a long time ago. You know, an idea has no value if it cannot be executed. And the result is the, the conclusion of the process. So t tools for me have very much been almost more important than the final the final product, the final watch, because they are the means by which you can actually execute it. And the process is something which I, I, I study today. I study in all the different companies that I go to. And uh, it's, it's something which I find as fascinating as the final product, if not more so. Yeah, with the, the wrong tool, a very simple job can be made incredibly difficult. But with the, the right tool... Even the most arcane and seemingly difficult jobs can be made almost breezily easy when you have the, the right tool for the job. Absolutely. And with the right, to, yeah. I mean, quite often, uh, I mean, and I was, I won't say I was late to make this, to, to realize that, but you spend a little bit more time making a uh, support, a uh, movement holder, a uh, special jig for executing a component. And even though it takes you X amount of time to do it, it will save you so much more. It'll take away the angst, the stress, and it allows you to be able to produce that final component in a fraction of the final time and better than what it would look like if you hadn't have had that tool in the first place. Now, I mean, again, it comes back to the, my, uh, the fascination of tools. André Lichaud is the guy who installed all of these early topping tools. And a variety of other antique machinery, and he, he absolutely lovely guy. He actually was a prototypist for making medical devices, and he developed several companies in that domain. And at one point, I forget the exact figures, but he was making thousands of aluminium or titanium, I think titanium hips at his own factory, and they were being shipped all all around the world. And he actually made like the prototype hip himself using conventional machinery. And then once he had the, the prototype, then it would be replicated using other form, other techno technology. But that's what he did to earn money. And it was very successful. But what he loved was restoring antique watchmaking tools, often which were discarded, rusty, th thrown away, or eventually people would just give to, give to him because they knew what he would do with them. And Andre... I mean, he, he's, I think he's in his early 80s now. The, for me, one of the, the most adorable elements of actually meeting the guy and walking around this, um, this Aladdin's cave of 
of incredible um, examples of early watchmaking tools, was he didn't even know what they did. Uh, he knew what they represented, and he wanted to develop a sanctuary for this for these early pieces. But it was only when I went there and I I walked around that I asked him the odd question about a few a few of the tools, and he didn't have the answers. Uh, and I explained to him pretty much how what everything did and how it worked, and he came to life. Uh, and I think we became kind of like kindred spirits from from that moment onwards, because he uh, he he then understood what it was, or rather what the functions were of those tools that he had actually restored, and he continues to do it to this day. Uh, and it actually explains why on some of the on some of the things that he assembled, he put things up, he'd assembled them backwards. They they assemble they look good, they look fine. They would never have worked in reality because he didn't actually know what the tool did. And that, that was that they were the exceptions rather than the rule. But uh Andre is just just wonderful. And all of the pieces, none of them are for sale. He 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 sells the double occasionally and then he gives the, the money to his local church. Um but he does it out of love. He does it because that's his hobby uh, and that is his passion. And his son, who is, I think he's a teacher, is, is as fascinated by his father as I have become. Hmm. Hey, you did a, a lovely video showcasing some of those tools with the Watches TV not too long ago. So we'll be sure to link to that in the, the show notes. Now let's dig into the, the Foundation Watch a, a little bit. What was the the catalyst that got you to pull the trigger on moving ahead and creating that? Because a lot of watchmakers aspire to create their their own piece, but very few actually do. You know, that's a long time ago now. And I'm very good at convincing myself and selling stories to myself when I've repeated them a long time, uh, many times. So I had a conversation with Daniela about this a little while ago. And from my perspective, the reason I mentioned Daniela is that she was actually kind of the catalyst of, because of a choice that she made. I had already built a workshop in the old farmhouse that we were renting in a place called Le Replat, near to Le Locle, where I was working for Renan Papi. And in my mind was, doesn't matter what happens in the future, with all the skills and knowledge that I had developed, if I had the machinery, I would always be able to work. It was just like a, a long-term, basic stability, security. And you could pick up tools very, very inexpensively there, especially old Schoblins, pointers, uh, jig borers, um, th things which were actually becoming outdated uh, and being replaced by new technologies were being discarded for tiny amounts of money. So I was buying this kind of stuff up uh, and I built a workshop. So I, I had I had the workshop. Then I like, and as you say, many watchmakers, we want to make our own watch. You have the skills, you kind of want to do it. But it's, there's a heck of a lot of commitment in taking that step and actually doing it. And one of the things which nurtured that, that realization was Renault and Pappy would support uh, anybody who wanted to learn uh, or to take a course in a locklet. So myself and a watchmaker, a Canadian guy called Richard Pepin, who still works for Renan Papi today, we both took a course in CAD uh, at the Technicom in Le Locle, and Renan Papi paid 50% of it. So I was able to design a basic uh, caliber, very, very basic, and very, very poorly uh, as well, because my experience was, was zero. But the thing that I think really pushed me over the edge was Daniela. Because Daniela and myself, we had come from London, and Daniela was going stir crazy living in this little town of Lalocla. And we had a certain social life, but Lalocla is the middle of nowhere. And when you've been sort of living between the Elephant and Castle and Islington in London, this is, these, are, this, these are other planets or other solar systems mm. apart. So one of the things Daniela decided to do, I think, for her own sanity, was she started to take a master's degree, a BBC master's degree by correspondence. And that was her thing. That was her something that she wanted to do. And it was a big project, which would take an awful lot of time. And when she decided to do that, I decided to build the watch. Uh, she had to remind me of that. 
for because I I'd mm. actually that gone out of my mind. So I had all of the tools, the equipment, the knowledge, and also I had to I wanted to prove to myself that I wasn't just a watchmaker, but I could be a constructor and I could be a designer. And Daniela's decision to take that MBA was the final thing which pushed me over the edge to proving to myself that I could do all of those things. So that's actually how that's how it happened. And to put that into context, in watchmaking, normally a watchmaker is a watchmaker, is somebody who builds watches, maybe maybe finishes them as far as decoration, but not always. But somebody who has the manual dexterity to take all the components and assemble them and adjust them and turn them into a finished product. A constructor is somebody who does all of the technical design of a caliber, calculating torques, wheel, uh, wheel counts, um, coming up with all of the necessary solutions when it comes to a, the, the, the technical design. And then a designer is somebody who makes a product which is desirable, something which can be sold, something which other people will find attractive. It's not very common that you find somebody who can do all of those things. And I needed to prove to myself that I could. It really wasn't for anybody else. The foundation, the foundation watch was a way to prove to myself that I could do all of those things. And it wasn't until about six months after I had finished it, when it had been sitting ticking on my bench, that I looked up. I was using it as like a, as a bench clock. I looked up, I looked at this thing after having almost forgotten about it. And I was just, I was kind of, I don't know how elegantly to express this, but I was in awe that I had actually made that thing. Not because it was a ticking mechanism, but because it was beautiful. And it was everything that I wanted it to be. Um, and that's not ego. That was uh, amazement. Um, uh, there was satisfaction. There was, I think, a sense of confidence that was derived from it as well. But what I had no concept of was what that would then lead to. Because following my experience in London, where I had built uh, this restoration workshop, I knew what it was like already to be, in a sense, independent, to be self-employed, because I ran it all. And I had never really wanted to do that again. There's a great deal of satisfaction or comfort that comes from working in a larger company where you, you, you're cushioned from all of the, the stresses and the pressures um, that uh, you, you experience when you actually have your own business. So I had no idea that that watch was then in the, in the shortness of time going to lead me yet on a, another direction, which was not one that I had planned. It was one that, that happened. It was not part of a business plan. That watch was then seen in 2001 by Philip Dufour, who was at the end of, uh, at the, end of the fair. And I was introduced to him by Case Engelbart, who was an engraver, who remains one of my dearest friends to, to this day. And Philip basically said, I should be there next year. Uh, I should be there next year as part of the AHCI to be able to, uh, to show them what I did. Um, and I did, but to do that without a commercial reason doesn't make sense because there's a lot of money involved. So I then developed wristwatches, which resembled the pocket watch. And in essence, a brand was born. And that is how that whole story began. It wasn't because I wanted to have a brand. It certainly wasn't because I wanted to have my name on, uh, on a product. That was actually the last thing that I wanted to do. And that was a decision made by collectors, not by myself. Because I had named the company the Watch Workshop, and the early watches had that name on them. But collectors didn't want to have, as one friend put it, Jack's Shed written on the, <laughs> on the, on the watch. They wanted to have Speak Marin, uh, because it's a cool name, and it's the person. Did you ever sell that watch, or did you keep it? The Jack's Shed one? No, well, the, the original, the foundation. <laughs> I sold it. I actually sold it recently. I sold it recently because when you end one life and you start another life, you kind of have to cut a lot of things off. And I find it very difficult to focus on multiple projects. And it's something which I've always done. But I have realized that the, the fewer you have, the more emphasis that you can place on singular things with less disruption. And 
when I left my the business that I spent over 16 years building, I needed to cut off. I needed to, it was starting a new life. And I did that very effectively. And the last thing that I had, which linked me to that life was that watch. And I had a lot of different ideas of how to sell it. And in, in short, yeah, I ended up selling it to a collector of pocket watches who understood what it was. And it wasn't about cash because it, it simply wasn't. It just had to go to somebody who actually understood and he understood. Right. It's about finding the right home. Yeah. And, and, and that was last year. That concluded one period of my life, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. It makes sense. Now, you mentioned Keith there. I, did he do the engraving on, on that piece for you? No, um, because I met... I, I, okay, the way I met Case Engelbart, well, a friend of mine had taken on a job to, to convert an early-minute repeater into a wristwatch. Um, so, sorry, to go back to answer your question, um, Case didn't do the uh, engraving on it because I only met him once the watch was actually made. But... Case had actually Case was employed by the person who bought the pocket watch to be converted or the fob watch to be converted. Because the easiest way to decorate the movement without reducing too much material in all the bridges was to engrave the piece. So that watch, which Case had engraved, which was how I met him, had done a tour of a whole bunch of different watchmakers and nobody was actually able to to get the thing working because it was over a hundred years old and it was a tiny, tiny piece which had been butchered during his life. So I ended up receiving it as like a last resort. So I went through and then restored it. Uh, I met Case during the process because he had to do some retouches on the, on, on the movement. Um, but that was one of the first projects I, I had during that first year. Uh, the guys who, there was a Charlie Scar, who was an amazing engraver in the UK, uh, who I think is still around today. I may probably retired. He engraved the, the German silver part of the dial, which was around the silver dial. And the silver dial was engraved by uh, an engraver whose name I can no longer recall, who was based in Neuchâtel. Had I known uh, Case, it would most definitely have been him who would have done it, as, the, as he did many, many, many uh, watches for me later. Paired with that dial were, were the hands on, on that watch. And I recall uh, from an article you wrote with it probably close to 20 years ago now, I think it was in the, the BHI's journal uh, about how you actually made those hands. And I, I was fascinated by the, by the process that you used. I wouldn't have thought to, to do it that way. Would you like to elaborate a, a little for, for listeners how, how you made the hands for that watch? I, I'll tell you, just so that nobody does it again, okay? <laughs> in very early pocket watches, onions that go back to sort of the 18th century, you would have hands called pe uh, poker and beetle. The poker would be the minute hand, the beetle would be the uh, the hour hand. And the poker hand was made by having um, a rod of steel. And then the profile of that hand would then be cut. And then once it's cut, you then flatten the hand so that you have a hand which is perfectly symmetrical. And that's how I made the hands for the foundation watch. And the result was something very voluminous because I didn't care about trying to make something slim. It was all about sculpture, about art, aesthetics, about something being beautiful. Um, I wasn't interested. I mean, the, about trying to make something um, slim. That that was not part of the the approach for longevity and uh, the the sort of philosophy that was behind the watch. So I spent an absolutely ludicrous amount of time turning these uh, hands on, a, I think it was a little uh, 50 uh, watchmaker's, uh, uh, watchmaker's lathe. And then on a filing block, flattening them down, and then uh, filing them, curving them. Uh, it, it, it took forever. But everything with that watch took for forever to do because I'd never really done it like that before. And it was very much uh, hand, hand watchmaking. It's not just hand finishing, but things were pierced, uh, things were filed. Um, it was it was old school, old old school, uh, I would say. So, when it, if anybody wanted to do the same thing today, don't do it that way. Um, there's <laughs> there's there's a whole bunch of other ways of doing it, which would be much less painful. Um, however, in that process of really hands on, 
things developed that probably wouldn't have developed had I made it on a, on a CAD program. Uh, it was very much a, a natural, organic uh, evolution of the components. I didn't even know what that watch was going to look like when I started. I just knew what the technical restraints would be. And I knew technically how I wanted it to be powered and run. And then the watch basically evolved during the period that followed. It's, um, it's, not, it's not unusual. Uh, it's the way that people historically have done it. I know that uh, Derek Pratt, that's kind of a way that he would often make pieces. And the watches would evolve during the whole process of, uh, of, of manufacture. Although saying manufacture doesn't really... Manufacture leads to quantity, whereas this is really, I don't know, this is a sculpture. This is, uh, this is watchmaking and maybe it's like in its purest form. It's, it's different. And I think only if you actually do it do you fully understand what that means because it's a, it's a completely different animal to pretty much any other animal that exists out there. Do you recall anything particularly challenging about making your foundation watch? Keeping going. Technically, anything can be made. But when you do something like that, you end up sacrificing weekends, evenings, holidays, and you kind of commit everything to it. And that, that's actually really hard, uh, especially when there's a lot of other things that you could be doing, whether that's drinking beer with your mates, going out with having meals with friends, you know, having a nice time, so to speak, uh, having a social life, uh, seeing family. Um, you know, doing things which are not associated with your profession. But I'd spent so much time and in retrospect also drunk so much wine um, and beer because that was quite often I would, uh, I, I would be working away in the workshop but I'd have my music uh, belting out in the background and I'd have a nice bottle of wine there or a beer or on occasions even whiskey or Jeancien, which was a wonderful alcohol that I, I never heard of in England, but was very common in that part of the, of the world and banned, if I remember correctly. And I would end up kind of like going into the zone. And the zone was a combination of the music and the booze. It would just propel me and I would just work crazy, crazy hours uh, on this thing. And I would make mistakes and then you start over and you, you repeat it. And the result was something which I felt, yeah, it, it, it didn't get finished when I was in the Lockler. It got finished when I was in a little town called Roll. And the, there was a, a young Irish watchmaker, Stephen McGonagall, sitting next to me. And I had one, it was a double barrel, double train uh, caliber I designed. And I'd only got one barrel in, one train in. And I remember Steve was next to me. And for the first time, I wound this thing up and it came to life. I mean, Mary Shelley would have been proud of me because I brought that thing to life. It was absolutely an absolutely phenomenal experience after having spent so much time, of which a lot of it, I really didn't want to do it, but I'd started it, so I had to finish it. And then to see that thing come to life was, was phenomenal. And it kind of made sense. It gave reason to everything that happened beforehand. But the hardest thing, yeah, the hardest thing is just to keep on going. And that, I think, is probably the hardest thing in whether you're, uh, you have a microbrand, you're an independent watchmaker, um, it doesn't matter what. Anything which requires your own momentum requires commitment for it to be successful. And you just have to keep going. And that's what I did with that thing. You mentioned Chenchen liqueur there and that's something i had no idea existed either uh until philippe dufour told me about it and uh, the reason he told me about it is because i was inquiring with him about gentian wood uh, and uh, he just happened to throw in that uh, the gentian root is also used to make this liqueur and uh, gentian wood is, is a fantastic tool for applying movement finishes and is part of the reason that philippe is able to achieve the incredible chamfers that he has on watches like the Simplicity. Uh, what are some of your favorite movement finishes to, to execute on a watch? Uh, honestly, th th there's, there's not a, a single or a specific type. It's something which has to be congruent. E every watchmaker has his own character, his own personality, and then that is seen when you see a product 
when you see the finished watch that that person actually makes. And I think that defines the difference between a kind of a watch maker and a producer of watches. Um, because the personality changes, because the reason changes behind it. What Philip does with Geneva Stripe or Coda Genève is probably the best that's ever been made, and it's absolutely stunning. And that is him. With I, I did I did everything because I was curious and I wanted to try everything because it was part of mm. that whole desire to learn. Uh, what I ended up liking the most was one of the most complicated means of finishing which was on a caliber which almost financially broke me called the sm2 and it was influenced by the foundation watch because in the mm. foundation watch you had the topping tool which had become far more flamboyant so it had become quite gothic and i took that gothic design and i introduced that into the the sm2 so that you had a very gothic and unique feeling to that caliber I mean, and the caliber to this day is it was it was beautiful. It was absolutely lovely. But what I liked in addition to that was if you look on early Cartier wristwatches that were made by the European Watch and Watch and Clock Company. Their technical director was Lecoute, I think, from Jeje Lecoute before the company was one, and even early Patek from the late nineteenth century. They would do lots of different kinds of finishing on German silver, but then it wouldn't be plated, um, which is a complete nightmare in one sense because the smallest amount of uh, moisture and then that material will actually tarnish. But if you keep the product completely clean, once you've done the angling, you've made the straight graining on the Geneva stripe, you've treated the edges, the, the depth that you have in German silver is absolutely beautiful. Lang and Sanna would do that with their watches. They wouldn't actually plate them afterwards. But they used a, a, a form of Geneva stripe, which would disguise any kind of impurities. What I did was I ended up having a, a like a circlage, a circular graining, which means that the tiniest impurity you would see, and I would never recommend anybody to do this, because if you, you scratch it, you see it. On a Geneva stripe, you don't. Um, if there's any uh, any oxidization, again, you see it. But when it's done, when it's nice, and then when it's sealed inside of a case, inside of its own environment, its own atmosphere, it is it has depth, uh, it has feeling to it. You, you can look at the design, the form of the movements, the finishing on the angles, the whole finishing, the decoration everywhere, and then you have the depth of the actual material which is often then lost if you gold plate it, rhodium plate it, rutanium plate it, PVD or DLC, whatever else you do afterwards, you are removing some of the depth from the material. Um, and there's good reasons for doing all the aforementioned coatings, but my preference, what I loved, was to have that, that metal, to see the, the depth of the metal and that was something which, which I personally absolutely loved. So the other thing is that any kind of plating, to a degree, has a life. And with mm-hmm. finishing and manipulation, yeah. it will come off. You can see that with only vintage watches. Whereas if you don't have a material, if you don't have a coating, it can't come off. So my whole thing was always about longevity, which is pretty much a selling point that every company pushes forward. But for me, if you had no plating, it wouldn't come off as well. So the it would retain that that beauty. If anything, it would become slightly tarnished with, with time. And that again adds uh character and, and charm to the actual the, the mechanics, the caliber. Another thing that I find impressive about the, the finish on the, the SM2 is the the finishing on the exterior angles on the, the oscillating mass. And something that, that kind of been curious about over over the years is is generally speaking with the, the oscillating weight. Uh, you want something that, that is, is quite heavy, but you want that weight distributed on the, the perimeter so have a material like tungsten on the, the outside of the weight and then a different material like steel uh, then riveted to that. Uh, but the, the oscillating weight on on your piece there with the, the SM2 looks to be a, of a single material. Uh, so what material is that, and how did you achieve uh, that look? Because in addition to all of that, you also have an oscillating weight that, that looks 
to be uniformly balanced from when looking at it from the, the top, but that's impossible to, to actually do because then the, the oscillating system, the automatic winding system, wouldn't function if it was, it was perfectly balanced all, all around the perimeter. It's, it's, um, it's, it's something that I did then, and you can see quite a lot today. And what you are looking at is only the top surface. If you look, if you take the rotor off, and the rotor is actually much larger than what you see through the case bag. Through the case bag, you only see part of the rotor. You see a small, like you see a wheel. When you take the case back off, then you see the rotor has an additional three millimeter diameter running around it. And then underneath half of it, you have a tungsten carbide weight. It's that which is driving the rotor, which is winding up the automatic. Same concept that was used later when we did the MBNF first watch with their rotor. Many other companies have done it, have done it since. Um, recently, I did a deconstruction on the Rosewell was the Rosewell 08. They have a complete black disc which turns. Um, it's the it's the mass. The mass is underneath it. And then, really, when you just put a flat disc on top, or as I did, I had a flat uh, a flat wheel. It's exactly the same thing. The the, the, the wheel, in a sense, disappears because it's equid the the weight is uh, the same on both sides. It's always what is hidden underneath that drives the automatic mechanism. One of the very first people to do it, I think the one person who did it differently, but before me, and I didn't find out until afterwards, was Vianney Halter, because mm -hmm. he had a, a sapphire rotor with what looked like um, a solid steel rim to it. And part of the rim probably was steel, and the other side was thick tungsten. So again, it's the same kind of concept, but it can be finished whether it, uh, with a sapphire wheel Sorry, sapphire disc, uh, a solid metal disc, uh, a wheel as I used, or the sort of the shuriken style that you have on uh, on Max's uh, MBNF watches. It, it's all the same kind of theory. So it's it's not rocket science, but it's it's a great illusion given that uh, the rotors are actually equally weighted on both sides. But all it is is just that you have a, a heavy metal mass, whether it's tungsten carbide, which is the, a popular choice because it's unseen. Or if you have a mass which is equally balanced, but of one material, then it can be any form of gold, literally. But then there's just going to be a mass of it on one side. Mm -hmm. I recall Vianney mentioning that uh, it was absolutely brutal to drill through the, the sapphire disc uh, to be able to affix it in the, the center of the watch there. So that's why he didn't uh, continue to pursue that for, for too many years. But the neat thing about doing the, the sapphire disc, the way that he did that, was that you then get an unimpeded view of, of all the, the movement underneath it and, and the finishing there, which you would normally be, be robbed of by the, the oscillating weight. Yeah, and they were beautiful. It was beautiful. His, his pieces were and are absolutely fabulous. He was, Vianney was one of that sort of that first generation. I kind of fell into it. But when I started, people like uh, Vianney, Philip, uh, Antoine Prosuzio, um, they were they were already established, and they are. I mean, the, 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 those of those guys who are still around today are are now veterans of this business. So no, it, it's it's a fascinating world with some extraordinary extraordinary people within it. Now you say you kind of fell into it, but what, what was the the process like of actually being inaugurated as a member of the the AHCI? You had to have two. Uh, the French call it Perra, um, not Godfather, sponsors, which would be the English equivalent. You have to have two existing members who will sponsor you. Uh, and mine were Philip and Antoine. Uh, and they both basically, ref they, they took responsibility that I would behave myself as with any candidate member of the AHCI. So they both stood by me. And then I think you have to exhibit, but they may have changed today. I'm no, I no longer collaborate with the Academy. I'm no longer a member of the, the Academy because I have nothing to do with them anymore. But at the time, you had to exhibit for three years, at least once a year, something like that. And then providing that you had respected the rules, the criteria, then you'll become a member at the end of it. And 
I mean, that's what we all did. I mean, the the the, the academy was the most extraordinary means during that period to trampoline, to be able to get in front of the the eyes of uh, the collecting world. And if my first exhibition was in 2002, and every year when a new member joined, that new member got absolutely phenomenal publicity. Two, 2002 was me. I think 2003 was Thomas Pressure. And then it was, there was no way that I could have done what I did at that time had the AHCI not existed. And that's very much down to Sven Anderson and Vincent Calabresa, particularly Vincent. I think he was really the very first person to, to get the thing moving. But both of them are the reason why the Academy still exists today. Yeah, and it was horrible in the sense that you had these uh, these booths where you would stand, there was no chairs, you would stand next to them for almost sometimes up to 12 hours a day, um, 10 hours easily, but sometimes a lot longer. Um, you could, whatever, nine to nine o'clock. I mean, it was, it, it was punishing. And then you would have the entire world come and, uh, and, and see what you did. Um, journalists, um, retailers. At that time, there were still distributors who then became agents. It, it was absolutely phenomenal. It was a different period in time. It's one that no longer exists, not in the same way as it did then. At, at that point, it was all kind of new. And the internet was still in its infancy. Um, the number of forums was much, much smaller. It was much more, in a sense, I think, refined. So it was a different animal uh, when I became a member of the AHCI. Your, your son was born right, right around this time as well. So I, I can't imagine that made things any, any easier for you. Uh, no, no, no. And this is, um, I guess it's not just with watchmaking, but it's probably with any profession trying to find some kind of balance. I mean, I openly suck at that. Um, I can work like an animal, but when it comes to actually finding balance with uh, with family, I've always had to work on it. And I, if anything, I'd do it better today than I ever have done. But at the time, I didn't. So what we did do, which actually facilitated the process of actually me spending time with uh, with Fenton, was Daniela. Daniela and I, we would work together, and she would, for the most part, work in the mornings, and I would work afternoon and evening. And then that way, I would actually spend time with Fenton in the morning. And that probably, in its own way, actually kept me sane. And I still have some wonderful, wonderful fond memories of living in Roll and going for my coffee on the main, at the high street with this like two-year-old, three-year-old who was extremely great company as well. But no, balance is not something which is easy. And I think that's, I'm guessing that it's the same for most watchmakers uh, I'm sure it's the same for most people, business people uh, as a whole. But when you're a watchmaker and you're both designing, making, selling, promoting, discussing your product, it's a 300% job. Watchmaking is not just about the product if you want to make it into a business. It's about the same things that apply to a large company. You just have to do it yourself. So with when I began... I would take. I would continue taking my pictures. I would continue writing articles. Uh, I would collaborate with uh, companies like uh, Harry Winston, uh, MBNF, uh, Metro du Temps, to be able to gain extra visibility. And it it all succeeded. It, it it all worked. But there is a sacrifice which I wasn't aware of at the time, and that sacrifice is actually the time that you put into it, because that time you don't get back. And I built something which I'm very proud of, but to the to, to the cost of uh, of the time of of seeing my son grow up. I've been far more present mm. with my daughter, but you know it's a very selfish thing in a sense when you develop a brand and then you you put everything into it. It sounds very noble, but at the same time there are there are consequences. There are always consequences to the decisions that we make. And with what I did, because we didn't have, we didn't basically have money. We had, we had watches, we had motivation. We had the time that we were living at, at that moment. 
we put everything into it. Had we had more cash or had we approached it differently or had we thought to do it differently, employ people, it would have been a different, a different kind of animal and I would probably have done things very, very differently. Thanks for listening to Off Hours. You can find detailed show notes at offhours.show. If you'd like to keep up to date with the show, follow us on Twitter at Off Hours. John can be found on Twitter at Under the Loop, and Chris can be found on Twitter and Instagram at Silver underscore Hand.